Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you have in your purse or pocket a phone, would you turn it off, please, or turn the volume off? That would be great. Um, turn to me to Genesis uh, 1, very first book, very first chapter of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Feel free to take that. If you do not own a Bible, that's our gift to you. We are nearing the end of our series that we've called God's Church, God's Way. And as a reminder, we'll be gathering next Sunday evening for our member meeting in which you'll be asked to either affirm or reject those proposed revisions to the bylaws that we've been talking about for several months. If you didn't get a copy last week, there is one, there are several in the coffee bar and also um, in the entryway. Please be praying for your church family as we go through this process. And if you're not a, a regular here, we would ask for your prayers as well as we seek God's wisdom on these matters. Thus far in our series of talks, we've defined the structure together of a healthy biblical church by emphasizing three particular things. One is a meaningful membership. The second is elder leadership. And last week, as Tad talked about, the third is deacon servanthood. And in those bylaws that we are proposing that the church choose to adopt, we've defined those three things in this way. It'll be on the screens. The first meaningful membership, God says his church is to be made up of members who enjoy responsibility for each other. A group of people that, yes, gathers together on Sunday morning to worship God, and that drives the rest of our life together. But we do much more than that. We are committed to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we aim to help each other grow and mature in our faith. Second, elder leadership. God cares for, teaches, and protects the local church through a plurality of qualified and called men who share these pastoral responsibilities. And then third, deacon servanthood. God frees the elders to concentrate on spiritual oversight and provides for the physical care, administrative needs, and day-to-day -day functioning of the church through qualified and called men and women. Now, we've tried to say this each week, but just to reiterate it again, these, these structures are, are not the point, ultimately, of the church. They, they must not become the ultimate end, the, the focus of everything the church is and does. Church is not finally its elders and deacons. They are merely the, the servants put in place by God to enable us all as members to live out our Christian lives together. The structures are there to nurture and enable the church to be a place of health. So if we could illustrate that perhaps in this way. Imagine walking out tomorrow morning to see your very favorite car parked in front of your place. And it's wrapped in a big bow with your name on the front. So at the count of three, I want you to yell out what car that would be. You ready? One, two, three. A lot of laughter going on. Um, it's a free gift for you. It's a perfect piece of machinery. It's beautiful, no dents, no chipped paint, brand new tires, nice rims. The upholstery doesn't have holes in it, and there's no ketchup on the ceiling. <laughs> the, the leather smells good, and it's not baking like it is in the middle of the summer. You can't believe this car is actually yours. So you climb in. You look around to make sure everyone's looking, and then you go to start it. 
Nothing. Not even the click, click, click that we get in our cars here every six months, because that's how long our batteries last. (laughs) So you get out and open the hood as if you know what to do, and there's no engine. Nothing there at all. Now, of course, this wouldn't make for a very good car, right? Neglecting the internal structure of the church is like having the perfect car without an engine. It might look really great, but it's not going to get anywhere. It's not going to accomplish what it's designed to do. Churches that ignore internal structures are ignoring the very tools, the very engine that God means to sustain the life of the church. Leaders who open the word of God and guide the people of God, just like the engine takes the car where it's supposed to go. Members, elders, and deacons are all important. Elders and the deacons are only as important as they are when they fit in and do what they're designed to do, which is equip the body to be the body. Now, if you've been listening closely in this series, you may have caught that we've defined the role of elder and deacon differently, and we've said that the scriptures put different people who are qualified in those roles. We've said that the role of elder is qualified with the phrase, qualified and called men. And we've defined the role of deacon with the qualifier, qualified and called men and women. Now, incredibly natural question to ask, that I hope you're asking, is why in the world would we say that? Why would we say the scriptures tell us the office of deacon ought to be open to qualified and called men and women, and the office of elder ought to be open to qualified and called men? Why would we say that? Well, it's because God's word teaches that God has designed our genders to display his character, particularly in the home and in the church. And that in those two environments, these leadership roles work concurrently. God's good design for our lives includes gender. Now, there's such widespread confusion in our society today over this that we want to just pause Not give any new material today, but simply reflect on why have we defined those roles in this way? So we want to take this morning to try and summarize what God says about men and women. This is a significant topic, and if you are a regular around here, you know that our habit is to simply start at the beginning of a book in the Bible and go through the whole book. And so we've come up against this issue as a church family over and over and over and over again. And yet, you've never been asked before until this coming Sunday night to add elders who are men to work with me. And you've never before been asked until this coming Sunday night to place men and women in the role of deacon. And so we're at a different moment as a church family. And so we don't want to somehow um, change what we've been saying, but we want to clarify, as we've been going through the scriptures, what is it that we've been saying for years about men and women? So why would we say this? And if these are questions for you that that are settled, that you feel like you've reached a biblical conclusion, and it's not a source of tension inside of you personally, 
then I would say you, you might be one of the few in the room. And would you please spend the, this morning not sleeping, but praying for other people in the room who have yet to reach conclusions? Or perhaps who have come to see what the scriptures say, but it's still a struggle. There's hurt and confusion over it. And to everybody else, let's just consider today in a broad overview, there's no way we can get to everything on this topic, but why would we position elders and deacons in this way? And what impact does that have, in particular if you're a husband or a wife? So we're going to consider three things this morning. The first is what we might call gender confusion. The second is gender creation. And the third is gender complementarity. So again, we can't get to everything on the topic, but I do want to reference a couple of things in each of those categories. Gender confusion, gender creation, gender complementarity. And uh, let's take just a moment and again ask the Lord for wisdom. Father, I don't think there is likely a topic that is more loaded for us than this. Many of us in the room have had uh, absent, abusive, distant fathers. If we even knew them. Many of us in the room have experienced the sexual trauma and carnage of other people in our own lives. Many of us have been reared in such a way that we hear, unless we can do anything and everything that the other sex can do, then we're somehow being subjugated. Many of us, the majority of us in the room, are, are coming from broken homes. And so this topic is not abstract, far from us, but rather inside of us in a way that none of us have been unaffected by. We thank you that your scriptures are not silent on this. And yet you don't paint caricatures that might somehow press all of us to look exactly the same. And so we need your grace, your wisdom, your truth. Would you speak to us today? And I pray, Father, that Anything that I've prepared that is correct, that is helpful, that is of you, would come from my mouth with your love and your gentleness and your mercy. And I pray, Father, that anything that I've prepared that is not truthful or is not helpful, that is unnecessarily offensive, would simply fall out of my notes. And we confess as your people that our desire is to be obedient to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with gender confusion. Uh, we live in a confusing world. There's a town in China for children under the age of five that there are 163 boys born for every 100 girls. Now, some of you in the room are from that part of the world. To the rest of us, that might not sound like a big deal, but when your generation reaches adulthood, they will, there will be 24 million more men than women. Now, how has that happened? Well, it's not something in the water. It's not 
just happening on its own. This gender lopsidedness doesn't exist just in China. There's now 160 million missing females in Asia. Why? Well, the term has been coined gender side. In sex-selective abortion, men are typically deemed superior to women for society as a whole. And so it is not unusual for parents who are becoming pregnant with their first child to discover that that child is a female and to abort her in favor of getting pregnant later and having a boy. Now, in the U.S., things are quite different. For those of us who are born in the United States, that sounds absolutely asinine, doesn't it? We can't even get our brains around that. What began as a campaign, an important campaign years ago, that asserted men and women are equal, has been culminated, triumphed, enwrapped in the whole discussion of same-sex marriage. It's good and right for society to give to protect, protection to men and women. We should be not only delighted, but to expect things like women being able to vote, be educated, drive, get good jobs. That ought to be the normative pattern of the world. These privileges that we are used to here now have not always been ours. Some of you ladies in the room are, are old enough to have experienced some of those changes. Both men and women are created in the image of God, as we'll see in a few moments from Genesis chapter 1. We are equal in personhood. We deserve equal treatment, equal respect, equal value and worth, equal opportunity to change the world for the better. Those of you in the room today who are Christians, I hope wholeheartedly that you affirm every bit of that. That there's no pause in your heart in any way, shape, or form towards those truths. No one treated women better than Jesus. And we as Christians are to follow in his footsteps. To treat each other, men, the way Jesus treated men. And to treat each other, women, the way Jesus would model men treating women and women treating each other. Christians should celebrate that freedoms once offered only to men are now rightly embraced by both genders. But the way we've gone about championing that call for equality, especially in the last couple of years, has been to stress the absolute unilateral equality of men and women, not on the premise that we've been created in the image of God, but rather that there are no unique differences between us. So in other words, we've sought equality on the grounds of sameness. So according to this view, which is the polar opposite from the view on the other half of the world. According to this view, human beings are unisex people. Gender is inconsequential. It's merely a product of culture. To put it bluntly, besides your plumbing, there's no difference between male and female. Men and women, boys and girls. Men and women are simply interchangeable. Now, imagine you're born in a third place, not these portions of Asia and not these portions of America. And you are in school and you're being taught some third way and you hear these two ideas. 
What in the world are you going to think? What a mess of confusion that is. In Asia, men are taught, you're better than women, so much better, let's kill off the females in hopes of having a more superior human being, a son. And here, we're taught men are not better than women. In fact, we're exactly the same. We're genderless people. Which one is it? Friends, they can't both be right. They contradict each other almost on every point. The truth is, both viewpoints fall tragically short. We'll look at that together in Genesis. Both butcher personhood as designed by God. Both lie and lead us down paths of pain and hardship and confusion. Both depreciate God's grand design of men and women and fail humanity in a colossal sense. But as gender confusion continues to spread in our society, the church has a tremendous opportunity. Anytime the darkness gets darker, the light also becomes brighter. So one of the reasons as a church it's so important that we obey God's teaching on gender as uncomfortable as it might be is because Tempe desperately needs churches who are modeling for young people what it means to be a godly woman, what it means to be a godly man. And it just fundamentally does not mean exactly the same thing. The path Western culture is on currently and running down will not deliver the promised liberation that it promises. Instead, it will only result in more hardship and confusion. Last Monday, an article appeared in the New York Times that got a lot of attention. The author starts his article by quoting Miley Cyrus, who has designated herself as being pansexual. And here's what she said. I am literally open to every single thing that is consenting and doesn't involve an animal and everyone is of age. Everything that's legal, I'm down with. Yo. I'm down with an adult. Any adult. Anyone over the age of 18 who is down to love me. Now the author takes that quote and uses it to reflect on his own personhood. Uses it as an example of why and how our culture is being liberated. He's a bisexual man. He goes on to say this. There was something about that casual carefreeness of the statements that I found both charming and revolutionary. It took a happy-go-lucky sledgehammer to the must-fit-a-box binary that constrains and restricts our understanding of the complexity of human sexuality. Here's what he's saying. He's saying for all of time we've been told that we're binary people. We're either male or female. But now there's a revolution that's freeing us, that's teaching us how archaic and slaving and damning that is. And then he goes on to say this, that this binary way of thinking. But it seems more younger people are liberating themselves from this thinking and coming to better understand and appreciate, and please listen closely, that people must have the freedom to be fluid, if indeed they are. That no one has the right to define or restrict the parameters of another person's 
attractions, attractions, love, or intimacy. People must be allowed to be themselves. That, that is the, the very drum beat of American culture. However, they define themselves. And they owe the world no explanation of it or excuse for it. They have to be reminded that the only choices they need to make are to choose honesty and safety. So the way of revolution, according to this view, is to simply be whatever you want to be. Friends, sexual sin and gender confusion are not the most serious sins you will ever commit. If you're here today and you're struggling with same-sex attraction or you slept with somebody last night that's not your spouse, you have not committed the, the unpardonable, unforgivable sin. You are not somehow forever tarnished and unable to experience the love and grace and forgiveness of God. People that would tell you you are, are wrong. Those sins are not even root sins. They are sins, rather, of identity. They're hurts of an identity improperly placed. They point to a heart without Christ. They point to what happens when we don't rely on who God has created us to be and how we can be rescued by Christ. And we want to say lovingly, compassionately, and clearly that there is forgiveness in Christ for all things. For all things. Now let's talk about gender creation. Part of the grandeur of being human beings is that God creates us male or female. As creatures made in the image of God, we're equal. And as creatures made in the image of God, we're not the same. Gender is not mere social construct, but part of our very identity. An identity that's good and that's God-given. I told uh, a friend yesterday that when I was younger in my early 20s and would teach on this topic, I would do so with great trepidation as though my job was hanging in the balance each time the topic came up. And honestly, I would, um, if, if there was a 30-minute talk given, I'd spend 20 minutes saying, here's what I'm not saying. Don't hear this and this and this and this. And then just barely stick my toe in and say, but the Bible says this, and I don't know why it does, but this is what it says, and so uh, we ought to obey. But I've come to see what I was doing was discouraging people from actually seeing that what God teaches is not only true, but it's good. And everything that God would tell us is for life and joy. And so if we take this topic and say, then, then, friends, we miss the gift that God has designed us as men and women to experience. Now, yes, we're all busted up and we've experienced hardship from other people. And so we receive this with difficulty, some of us. Some of us, frankly, it's a bitter pill to swallow 
but it's the medicine we need that might not taste good going down, but it's going to heal the infection that sin has caused. God created you, friends, and he created you either male or female to gloriously, powerfully, amazingly, and distinctly reflect his image. Let's see that in Genesis 1. Look at verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man. The image there, the word there is for mankind, men and women. Let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And he could have stopped right there. But he said, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Friends, in the very first chapter of the Bible, God goes out of his way to say, men and women are equally made by God to reflect his image. Gender is not a biological accident. God's image is on display in both male and female, equally wonderfully, and the text is telling us, distinctly. God had something beautiful and right and good in mind when he made two genders. We would know less about God if there were just women. And we would know less about everything if there were just men. <laughs> Friends, this was God's good design. Look again at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In almost every single place, the Bible gives specific teaching on gender. After this, it points back to here. That the design of God comes from the original created order. Now what exactly does this differentiation between men and women come down to? What exactly does it mean that God made us male and female? Beyond the obvious are physical differences. What's God getting at? Men and women are equal in worth as God's image bearers. But that does not mean our functions and our roles are identical. Now it's true that the scripture does not contain hard and fast definitions of masculinity and femininity per se. In other words, I can't give you a verse that says, turn here as though you're looking at a dictionary and it says masculinity means this. And femininity means this. I, I want to be careful to say the definitions must be more subtle than that. And there must be more flexibility in them than that. Why? 
I think it's because God doesn't make every man and every woman exactly the same. There's creativity. There's a spectrum of gifts that God gives us. So we should be cautious about making sweeping, unbiblical generalities. We're not trying to say, Church on Mill, we must live as though we're in the leave it to beaver era of life. Men, you must carry a briefcase, and women, you must wear an apron. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not talking about who cleans the toilets and who mows the four grades of glass, the four blades of grass in your yard. The Bible obviously doesn't say anything that specific. It doesn't get down to gender teaching at that level. But if we read the scriptures carefully, the Bible does tell us godly men, particular husbands, godly women, particularly wives, and godly men, elders, and godly men and women, deacons. In other words, it does tell us, here's some particularities in your roles, in your responsibilities. And from that, we can infer what lies at the heart of biblical masculinity and femininity. Are you with me? We can't reduce masculinity and femininity, though, into marriage roles and relationships alone. So if you're here today and you're single, you should not ignore these passages. They give you clues about how God has made you, even if you might not presently be in one of those roles. So here's my attempt to summarize what the Bible would say about men and women, in particular in those roles. In general, we could say that godly masculinity images God in the humble embracing of responsibility. It's the call to lead, to provide, to initiate, and to protect. I say that again. It's the call to lead, to provide, to initiate, and to protect. Men, it's the passionate, self-giving design of God that you would lead and not desert, that you would provide for and not childishly take from, that you would protect and not manipulate and use. What does it mean to be a man? That seems to be the spectrum upon which God would place you and upon which you need to figure out as a man how exactly will God lead me in living out those kinds of responsibilities? Jesus perfectly exemplifies this, right? He's the ultimate godly man, the perfect blend of tough and tender, always taking benevolent responsibility under the direction of the Heavenly Father. That's what you are to do. So here's what it's not. Masculinity is not authoritarianism. It's not patriarchalism. It's not misogynistic thinking. It's not what we so often see in men today. A lack of responsibility and an exercise of freedom by playing golf, watching porn, playing video games, and rejecting any obligations beyond what you simply want to do for yourself. We talked in the connection class this morning on, on, on men that God calls us to gentleness. And how we often picture gentleness as weakness, but it's not in any way, shape, or form. 
How exactly do those things play themselves out in your life, brothers? Well, there's a lot of latitude given by God there. Men in varying degrees differing to our differing relationships. God's good call in our lives is that we would appropriately, humbly, diligently carry out a sense of responsibility to lead, protect, initiate, and provide. God doesn't give us a list of chores, men. In the Bible, there's no honeydew list, but rather a pattern to embrace and to discern within your unique personhood, within the particular relationships God puts you in, how you're to live. Some of you whose character and spiritual maturity makes you qualified for the roles should be prayerfully considering being assessed to be an elder or a deacon. Now, women, in general, we could say that godly femininity is the freeing disposition to image image God by affirming, receiving, and nurturing. Passages like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 2 and Ephesians 5 make it clear that the passionate, life-giving design of God is that you would flourish as you build up, not tear down, as you affirm, not domineer, as you nurture, not neglect. Women in varying degrees relative to your differing relationships, God's call in your life is that you would appropriately affirm, receive, nurture, and gloriously image the way Jesus relates to the Father. To think that's a subservient role is absurd. Would we say that Jesus was degraded in his role of living in such a way as to point to what it means to follow the Father? Surely you wouldn't take that position. Ladies, God has designed you to be a helper and a life giver. You image God as you help and as you give life. Some of you whose character and spiritual maturity makes you qualified for the role of deacon should prayerfully consider and pursue being assessed to be a deacon. God's good design is that on this spectrum, tailored to our own individual personalities, men would mature as godly men and women would mature as godly women. Equal, but not interchangeable. Some men, as they mature, will be called as elders and deacons. And some women, as they mature, will be called as deacons. But all of us who are Christians, as we mature, are called into disciple-making, equally engaged and passionate and committed to the church, to the work of God. Not in any hierarchical kind of way. Very much equals seeking to help each other flourish. Which brings us to our last point. Gender complementarity. Now, complementarianism seeks to carefully affirm the Bible's teaching that men and women image God in equally wonderful, complementarian ways. Now, not compliment, you look nice today, but complement, we work well together. We complete each other. Complementarity seeks to encourage us to see God's design as both truthful and good, both right and wonderful, obedient towards God and profitable towards us. One author defines it this way. 
Complementarity means that the music of our relationships should not merely be the sound of singing in unison. It should be the integrated sound of soprano and bass, alto and tenor. It means that the differences of male and female should be respected and affirmed and valued. It means that male and female will not try to duplicate each other, but will highlight in each other the unique qualities that make for mutual enrichment. Now, if what the Bible says is true, and if that quote is an accurate assessment of the issue, then why is this so difficult? Some of you, your blood is boiling. Why is this so hard to receive? Why do our relationships often feel more like war than a symphony? Sin. Rather than creating gender distinctions, the fall of mankind into sin distorted and strained the differing roles and relationships that we have. Eden is the original origin of the battle of the sexes. When Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned, when they rebelled against God and fell into sinfulness, then their relationship was plunged into chaos. And all of us, men and women alike, have been the same ever since. God told them that that's what would happen. It was part of the curse of the fall. If you're unfamiliar with the story, or perhaps if you're unsure if what I'm saying is correct, then take some time today to read Genesis 3. It'll take you 10 minutes. Read it closely and carefully. What you'll see is that Eve sinned first by eating from the tree that God forbid. And then she gave to Adam and he ate. Now, I grew up in a very traditional church environment in which we've mocked this together in the past. The, the deacons would walk together single file after everyone else in the auditorium was standing and they're facing them, and then they would sit on these throne-like things in the front. It's disgusting. Completely unlike the picture of servant leadership in the Bible. And so in that environment, uh, I grew up, I don't know if I was actually taught this or if I just assumed it, but I grew up thinking that Eve is out frolicking around and she sees the tree and she has this discussion. She takes the fruit, she eats it, she likes it a lot, and then she goes looking everywhere for Adam. Where is Adam? He's got to try a piece of this. But that's not what happened. So many times when we read the scriptures, we create our own picture. And so the rest of our lives, Christians, is learning to see what's actually there. And what's actually there is Adam was standing with her. The story's clear. Adam was not off doing his own thing. He was with Eve. And as she took that fruit and ate of it, he neglected the very things he was supposed to be doing. He was not innocent. Adam failed Eve by not protecting, not initiating, not caring for her. He dropped the ball. 
So when God comes looking for people after the fall into sin, who does he come calling for? Adam. Why? That's narratives in the Bible, the details are in there for a reason. They're not merely space fillers. Like, God didn't have a 20-page a paper he had to submit, so he's filling it with superfluous information. Right? If there's a detail in a story, it's there for a reason. So Eve took first. She sinned first. And yet God comes and he holds Adam primarily responsible. Why? Because Adam's responsibility was to tend to the direction, the spiritual health, the protection of the family. He was not only supposed to do that for Eve, but he was to be the picture of everyone else who would come after, would do that for others. God called the man to initiate, to protect, and provide. Adam blew it. He failed. And men, all of you have too. Husbands and men considering eldership, if your reaction to this kind of sermon is, see, I'm in charge, then God help you. Because if you're married, you're going to harm and abuse that relationship with your wife. And if you're an elder, you're going to manipulate and take advantage of the church. You have no business being in either capacity if that's the way you receive this. Frankly, I think you don't even understand it if that's the way you receive this. If you really get it, then you're going to be busted up, down on your knees, begging God for help. Because you can have 10 days in which you do everything perfectly, and it takes one moment of the 11th day to destroy everything else you did in the first 10. The fall into sin affected first our relationships with God. But Genesis 3 tells us the very next thing that fell apart is harmony between men and women made in God's image. So why would we think this isn't going to be hard and confusing and difficult? But Christ came to create a new humanity. Jesus left heaven, came to earth to do what the first Adam didn't. Jesus lived 33 years perfectly obeying God. He valued and equipped both men and women. He revealed God perfectly. And then he died, stretched out a terrible death in our place. Condemned. So you and I don't have to be. At the cross, both men and women are equals. Both are sinners deserving of hell. And yet both can become saints, supremely loved by God redeeming us from the curse of the fall. The church then, friends, is a collection of men and women, equal heirs of salvation in Christ, who model for the world what humanity was always supposed to be. How foolish of us to think 
that we would not be gender confused. But how great our opportunity to show God's wisdom by gladly, humbly, graciously submitting to his teachings. Let's be joyful in the gender God gave us and display the wonder of God that's put on display if we do that correctly. The only hope we have for that, both as individuals and as a church, is by the power of the gospel. Any other power will lead to abuse, neglect, hardship, and failure. Think of what we could become as a church. If what people thought of when they thought about us is there's a collection of redeemed rebels who are saying yes to everything that God says. And they're doing it humbly, graciously, passionately. God has geographically positioned us in such a way that we have a steady, constant stream of people coming in and out and going not only around the United States, but around the world. Friends, our impact can be global if we get this issue right. Let's pray. Father, I'm well aware as we speak about this topic that that it is difficult. That it conjures up both positives and negatives. That that some of us in the room say, say yes and we affirm it. Others say yes and it makes us want to vomit. Others say no! And it makes us never want to come back. God, we pray that you would help us by your grace, through your spirit, and the power of the gospel to be divided down to bone and marrow so that we could understand even our own thoughts and intentions. And so that you could free us up to be the people you've designed us to be. God, this whole issue of gender and sexuality is what you've given us in this particular moment in history to be ground zero of where the world will see what effect the gospel can have. And so we pray that far from causing disunity, this would help us to live in the unity that you've provided for us. I pray, Lord, that the men in the room would embrace your design on their lives. That we would not be domineering and yet we would also not be absent. And I pray for the ladies in the room that they would know that they image God, 
that they show the world what Jesus is like as they live out God's design. And none of us, that will look identical in. And so we praise you that you've given us, you've given us room. And we pray you give us guidance. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.